You may be seated. Psalm 119 this morning. As we're continuing our study here through the book of Psalms, we're at Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. It would make sense that the longest chapter in the Bible is also about the Bible. This is what is called an acrostic psalm. There's 22 sections. Each one of them goes with the Hebrew letter associating with it. And some of your Bibles may actually have the Hebrew letter there and actually have the the, um, picture of the Hebrew letter with the word beside it. Eight verses in each section, and they all start with that Hebrew letter. That's what the acrostic means. It was a memorization tool. It was a memorization device. So therefore, you'd be able to stop as you read through this. It would flow better in the Hebrew language for you to be able to stop and say, I can follow along and remember it. Now, there's 176 verses, and this is up to a bit of a debate, not really a big deal, but how many of the verses deal with actual God's Word? I've seen estimates as high as 175 out of 176, as low as 170 out of 176. The point is this, that nearly every passage in this chapter talks about God's Word. This is God's way of self-disclosing who He is, and words, and promises, and decrees, and instructions. This is God's way of telling us who He is. Is This is an all or nothing chapter. You either believe that this is God's word, and when you believe it's God's word, that you focus on it, you concentrate on it, it's your emphasis, or you believe this is a man-made chapter and it's really just some advice that you can take or leave. But that's why we spent so much time last week describing what God's word is. If you were not with us last week, I highly encourage you to get a copy of the CD, listen to it online, because we went into what does it mean that it's God's word? What does it mean that it's God-breathed word? We got into the historical accuracy of God's word, the readability of it. We went through all of it, and we made this point very clear. It's not just read the Bible more. It's very, very important that when you hear a message like this, you do not walk away with the mindset of, okay, just read the Bible more. I get it. No, but why? Why should we be in the Bible? This is the power of God's word, changing lives, giving purpose. You have in your hand the very word of God. And as we got into last week, how did it come to us? The reliability of it, the accuracy of it, the power of prophecy, the realization of sin, God's plan for salvation. Just don't read it more. No, I want to understand what it is. I want to understand why it's important. And today this chapter shows us the word of God plays a role in our salvation that is eternal and life-changing. So once again, if you weren't with us last week, please... Take a chance to listen to that, because if not, it's going to easily come across just as read the Bible more. That's not the goal. The goal is this. I want you to have a God-given, heartfelt desire for the Word of God. A God-given, heartfelt desire for the Word of God. Not legalistic, not homework, and then to make practical changes in your life. A difficult day, go to the Word. Discouraging day, go to the Word. Attack, slandered, go to the Word. To learn what that means to be in the Word. How often? When should we be in the Word? Well, this chapter tells us. Can you take a look at verse 147? I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your Word. So before the dawning of the morning, I should be in the Word. How about verse 97? Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. During the day. How about verse 55? I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. Or verse 148. My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Very simply put, morning, day, and night. We're in the word. Wake up in the middle of the night, you can't sleep. 
Don't check the headlines one more time. Don't flip on the TV. Get in the Word. Before you go to work, get in the Word. When you have time during the day, get in the Word. This is what it's about. It's understanding and grasping the importance of this book, of God's very way of communicating to us. And it is something that is accurate. It is something that is reliable. It is something that is inspired. And like I said, we covered that all last week. Problem is, when I get into this Word, I have difficulty understanding this word. That's why this chapter also gives us answers with that. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Praying to have my eyes open to grasp it and understand it. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts so I shall meditate on your wonderful works. Lord, I'm going to pray my eyes are open by you. I'm going to pray that you help me to understand it. Verse 32, enlarge my heart, Lord. Give me a heart to grasp it. His word says, incline my heart to your word. Lord, I'm going to pray to want to be in your word more because the reality is my flesh does not want to go to this book. My flesh wants to go to what my flesh feels fun. Another television show, another this, another that, another game, whatever. No, Lord, I see the eternal purpose and reward of this book and I want to be in it. I like how the New Living Translation does verse 36. Give me an eagerness for your laws. Lord, give me that eagerness. So once again, this is not a teaching on just read the Bible more. Understand what it is, why it is important, and the way the Word of God plays a role in our life. The goal is a God-given, heartfelt desire for more of the Word. Haley has a great quote about this that I liked that described the heart that we're supposed to have for the Word. And to be honest, the heart that a lot of Christians do have. It says, yet widespread neglect of the Bible by churches and by church people is just simply appalling. Oh, we talk about the Bible and defend the Bible, praise the Bible, exalt the Bible. Yes, indeed. But many church members seldom ever even look into a Bible. Indeed, would be ashamed to be seen reading the Bible. And church leadership generally seems to be making no serious effort to get people to be Bible readers. Oh, how true is that? Oh, we talk about the Bible, defend the Bible, praise the Bible, and exalt the Bible. Yes, indeed. But many church members seldom ever even look into a Bible. Uh, May the Lord truly give us an eagerness for His Word. Why is this so important? Because the Word of God plays an eternal role in who we are in Christ. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, please. 1 Peter chapter 1. As we mentioned last week, we got into the accuracy, the reliability of the word, the inspiration of the word. We talked about the uniqueness of the Bible with prophecy. We talked about the uniqueness of the Bible and understanding who God is and sin and the need for salvation. That's the purpose of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is to show us the need of the Savior and God's plan for our lives. But I want to go a little bit deeper here as we get ready to get into Psalm 119. Take a look here at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. How were you saved? You were saved, obviously, through Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by him. But the way that gospel message was presented to you was through the word of God. Now, you may not have understood they were presenting God's word, but you can't present the gospel message without using God's word. Even the term there, born again, is a Bible word, John 3, 3. When you are proclaiming the gospel to somebody and sharing them Christ, you are sharing what you have learned and been taught from God's word. 
And so that's why it's so important. That's through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. As we mentioned last week, the blessing of God's word, it does not return void. It lasts forever. It is truth. I can rely on that. In this world where no one wants to claim what truth is, the Bible tells us this is truth. This is foundational. Because why? Verse 24. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. The word of the Lord endures forever. So many things will come and go in this world. The eternal lastingness of God's word is foundational truth. And when we grasp this and understand it, it does not become homework or legalistic or have to. It becomes, why would I not want to invest my time in this? Please note, this is not a verse a day keeps the devil away. What this is, is understanding this is how God speaks to us. I'm not against a verse a day. I love a verse a day. But I want you to go deeper. You know, sometimes I'll talk to people and I'll say, so what what does your devotional life look like? And that's really just a term we use. It's not a Bible word. Because sometimes when you talk about a devotional life, it almost comes across as, oh, I got up and read this morning, so I'm good for the next 12 hours. No. We're going to talk about meditating all the day on the word. But I've had some people say, well, I got this calendar on my desk and it's got a verse up top and every day I read that verse. I, I mean this sincerely. That is better than nothing. And I really do mean that. But just imagine every morning getting up and somebody giving you a few little specks of granola and saying, here's your meal for the rest of the day. They're going to constantly be hopefully hungry for more or your body's going to shut down. When I start seeing that the word of God endures forever, I see the importance of making it vitally important in my life. Jump back one book to the left, James 1. What is the issue then? Well, as we mentioned earlier, my flesh doesn't want to get into this book. As we mentioned last week, when I get into the book, it reveals sin in my life. And I don't like sin being revealed into my life. God's word shines a light into my life and it shows me the things I'm doing wrong in life and in marriage. So therefore, I want to stay away from it. So I have to pray, Lord, incline my heart to it, enlarge my heart to receive it. Give me an eagerness for it because I just want to go do what I want to do, when I want to do, how I want to do it. But what about some of you that have been in church your entire life? I mean, you've heard all the Sunday school stories. You know it. James 1, starting 22 with me. Actually, starting 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. See, right there's the word which is able to save your souls. We're not worshiping the word. We worship God who gave us the word that then describes to us how to come to know Christ. 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. Deceiving yourself. There is a deception in knowing your Bible. Oh, I know where he's going to go with this. Oh, I know that story. Yeah, you've heard them since kindergarten. Some of you may have grown up in a denomination where you've been baptized at an early age, catechism. Uh, You've gone through the whole thing, confirmation, and you know it. But are we hearing it or are we doing it? Are we putting it into practice? You can mark it, you can underline it, you can memorize it, but what we need to do is go be a doer of the word. 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, God's word, and continues in it, continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Not just hearing it, but doing it. Putting it into practice. The goal, once again, a God-given heartfelt desire for the word of God that makes practical changes in your life. 
Now, I have two Old Testament examples to show you of this. First one is from Ezra. And you don't need to turn there because if you take a look at your sheets, I have on the one note sheet there, it has Ezra uh, 7.10 on it. And yes, I know there's been more note sheets as of late, and I'm hearing it from you guys. Oh, two sheets today, yep. Keep it up, there'll be a book next week, folks, with homework. I'm telling you right now. I think it's important to hear it, to know it, to understand it, to grasp it. If you go back and you break down what church is supposed to be, according to Ephesians 4.12, church is supposed to be equipping the saints. So I have you here this morning. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for decades. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for months. Some of you may not be saved. But for those that are here, I want to equip you with tools to go deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't know who Christ is, I want to present who he is to you. So I give you these sheets. Play tic-tac-toe. It's okay. It looks like you're being diligent. That's all I know. But Ezra 7.10, if you look at your sheet there. For Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. May I encourage you, learn the Old Testament characters. Paul tells us in in Corinthians that they were given to us as an example, an example of what to do and what not to do. And so often we have all these Old Testament names. Old Testament. And you just start realizing, what's the point of this? I did a, a class a while ago where it was an Old Testament survey, and he gave us sheets of hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament names. And we were supposed to put down what category they were in, a brief bio of who they are, etc. And you start realizing all these people that God and his sovereignty and wisdom says, he's important, she's important. Ezra is important. I love Ezra. Ezra is my favorite characters in the Bible because of this one verse. He prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. There's some notes here from a man by the name of Benson. What does it mean to prepare his heart? He set his mind and affections upon it, made it his chief business. That's what Ezra did. He made it his chief business. That's what he thought about. That was his goal and focus in life. What is your goal and focus in life? Ezra, God's word. To seek the law of the Lord. How do you know what your focus is in life? When your mind goes to neutral, what do you want to think and talk about? For you that have been driving for a long time, you come up to a red light and you're at the red light and you've just been trained subconsciously that the light's not going to turn for a while. So you just kind of comfortably sit in your car, you had your foot on the brake and you're just waiting. Your mind goes to neutral and the light goes from red to green. What do you think about? What If given an opportunity of quietness, where does your mind want to go to? What drives you? It's amazing what drives people. Some of it is just sinful. It's fleshly desires. It's driven to that woman, it's driven to that drink, it's driven to that money. That's where my mind goes in neutral. For some people, it amazes me where the mind goes. Work. I have people come up to me, and all they want to talk about is how much they hate their job. And your mind, you go to work. Your mind has been set upon it. You've prepared your heart and your affections upon work. And if I bring that up, you say, oh, no, I don't. I hate my job. Then why do you talk about it all the time? I'm not a fan of going to the dentist, so I don't talk about it. It's amazing what we take our mind to and our words to. Some of it's sports. Some of it's this or that. It's physical pleasure. His was the law of the Lord, and he prepared his heart, set his mind and affections upon it. To seek the law of the Lord. To search it. To understand it. To grasp it. To know the ins and outs of it. And then to go do it and teach it. See how Ezra takes everything we have learned thus far. He doesn't just hear it. He does it. 
He chews on it. He meditates on it. He focuses on it. He practices it. He tries to grasp it and understand it. And that's what makes Ezra so amazing. The word that goes along with this, if you just go open your sheets a little bit, is the idea of meditating. Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and he meditates, in his law he meditates day and night. Please remember, meditate from an eastern perspective means to empty. Meditate from a biblical perspective means to fill. So when you meditate on the law, you're filling yourself, you're chewing on, you're constantly thinking about it. The word, once again, implies a deep, serious, affectionate thoughtfulness about it. Day and night, as we already mentioned in the passages, when should you be in the Word? Morning, noon, and night. It drives us. It gives us purpose. It gives us meaning because this is the very Word of God. As we said back in the introduction, if this is just a book written by man, then it's advice. Take it or leave it. If this is the very Word of God, it is life-changing on the time I spend in it. And it's already promised me it will not return void, it will not be empty, and I will be blessed by being in it. That's Ezra. May we have a heart like Ezra for his word. Next Old Testament example. Can you go with me to Deuteronomy 17? Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 is a fun passage as it's going through the law. And if you find yourself burdened by the law, when you get into the end part of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, parts of Numbers, may I encourage you, look for these little nuggets that are just so eye-opening. So smack dab in the book of Deuteronomy and this idea of the law, you come to how a king is supposed to act. Now, before we get into this, I have noticed this a lot. There's definitely a push in the world and management styles. We, we seem to constantly be as a, as a system writing books on what management styles look like, conferences about it, seminars, etc. And everybody wants to have the best management style. And it creeps into Christianity too. What does a biblical leader look like? You can go pay 150 bucks and go to a seminar and find out what a Christian is supposed to do and how the pastor is supposed to lead his church. And there's books and everything else about it. What I've come to the conclusion is let's just study the Bible and see how the Bible tells me to lead. And what you have in Deuteronomy 17 is how I'm supposed to lead, how a king is supposed to lead, how a person is supposed to lead, how you are supposed to lead at your job. And it starts out with what not to do. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, I say, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set as a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Needs to be a Jew from one of the twelve tribes. 16, he shall not multiply horses for himself. That'd be the present day tank. Don't build your army up. Nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. They just came out of Egypt. There's going to be the desire to want to go back to the world, to want to go back to that lifestyle. King, leader, don't let your people go backwards. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. Just because you have power, don't exploit it. Don't be sinful in that. And you see the danger of multiplying wives, even under the idea of political alliances, the danger of that. Um, Next one, 17. Uh, Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Be careful of the power that comes. So we have a whole list of what not to do. Don't build up your army just purposely for power. Don't go after the women. Don't go after the, um, the gold, the silver. It says in the book of Proverbs that kings shouldn't be drinking. There's all these things of what not to do. But now we get to what to do. Look at the advice they give the king on what to do. 18. 
Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of the law in a book from one of the before the priests of the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and the statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Can you imagine that? Paying 150 bucks to go to a leadership seminar and some guy gets up there, reads those verses and says, the best leadership advice I can give you is write out the Bible by hand. And then he just sits down. That's the advice given to the king. Write out the Bible. Read it every day. I tell you, if you're in any type of leadership position, write out the Bible. Read it every day. Literally, write out the Bible. Write out the passages that God is moving in your heart. Start writing out chapters. It will bless you more than what you could ever realize. It is a biblical concept to take this word and say, I care so much about what this book says. I'm going to write it out. I know for me, when I start writing out chapters, I see things I did not see before. Because my mind is reading it, then my mind is writing it, and as I'm writing it, I'm reading it again, and all of a sudden that word pops out that I don't know how many times I've read that, but just by the act of writing it out, then going back and rereading it again. And what do I get out of this? 19. I learned to fear the Lord. I learned to observe the law of the Lord. I learned to not become prideful, verse 20, above my brethren. I learned not to get pulled to the right hand or the left. Oh my goodness, are people getting pulled to the right and to the left right now? We have lost the straight path of God. Why? Because we're not in the Word. And when people are not in the Word, they succumb to craziness. We must keep ourselves focused on this book and what God is telling us. And I encourage you, if the Lord is stirring your heart with this passage, get a notebook. Start writing out your book of the Bible. Start writing out the chapters that move you and allow the Lord to do that. Back to Psalm 119. For keeping track, last week was one whole week on an introduction. This week is half of it. So after a week and a half of introduction, we're now getting into Psalm 119. The pace we are going will be done by Christmas of 2022. We've already read verses 1 through 8. First word, blessed. Do you realize the result of being in the word is you're blessed, joyful, happy? Do we not want that? Do we not want to be blessed by being in this word? There's a joyfulness and a happiness that comes out of it. If you find the Bible tedious and homework that I'm telling you right now, you're missing the first word. How blessed are you to be in the word? Blessed outwardly in your walk. Blessed inwardly in your heart, verse 2. So one, outwardly in your walk, two, inwardly in your heart. What's it mean to have a walk with the Lord? I love Colossians 2.6. If you look on the back of your sheets I gave you, there's a devotional by Charles Spurgeon that he does Colossians 2.6. As you therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. I'm not going to read that devotional to you. I don't like it when people read things to me, but it was such a good devotional that I was going to try to summarize it, and I thought, nope, I'm just going to give it to you. Read it, I encourage you. It's one of the best devotionals I've ever read that describes what a walk is. We use that term in Christianity. How's your walk going? Does he have a strong walk? It's a biblical term, but what does it mean to walk with the Lord, to walk with him in action and progress and continuing as a habit? And Charles Spurgeon does a great job with this, so I'm just going to leave that with you. And I encourage you just to pray over that verse, as you therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
But we're blessed in this walk, everyday life activity. And we're walking in the law. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. The idea of keep. Not temporarily, but a commitment. It's used 27 times in this chapter. The idea of continually committed to it. Keeping up it. You know, we use these terms. Can you keep up an exercise program? Can you keep to the diet? Can you keep to that project? How often in society do we start and quit? And we see right here from the beginning, the idea is to be committed to the word of God. And when we do this, we're blessed, verse 1, are being undefiled, walking in integrity, walking in a blamelessness. Because God's word is leading us and guiding us and directing us. And we seek him, verse 2, with our whole heart. With our whole heart. Now here's the problem with seeking him. Romans 3.11 says there's no one who seeks after God, no, not one. That's a problem. God's word tells me no one seeks after the Lord then how in the world am I supposed to seek him if he says no one can seek me? The answer is found in Psalm 27, verse 8. You don't need to turn there. But God says, when I say to you, seek me, you will then say, I will seek you, Lord. Think that through. The way I seek the Lord is by God putting it on my heart to seek him. And when God puts it on my heart to seek him, I then now desire to seek him. It's something we need to pray for. The reality is, Lord, in my flesh, I don't want to seek you. I want to watch that show one more time. I want to go do that useless entertainment thing one more time. I want to sleep in. I want to go to bed early. I want to do what I want when I want to do it. So my heart does not want to seek you. So Lord, the only way I can seek you is by going back to a set of introduction. Lord, enlarge my heart. Give me an eagerness for your law. Incline my heart to you. I can only pray for more of you because my flesh battles this. And so when the Lord stirs my heart to seek him, then I need to respond to that. And if you're here today and you're not feeling the call to seek him deeper, may I ask, have you ever asked to do it? Have you ever listened? Because when the Lord puts it on your heart to say, go deeper, will you respond? Because we are called to seek him. And not only seek him, seek him with a whole heart. Now, I'm willing to bet here so far, I I don't think there's been much that anybody would probably disagree with so far. If, If you come this morning... And you claim Christ as a Christian. I I think we've been pretty much so on the same page. The idea of the whole heart is where it starts to get a little contentious. Whole heart. Choose repeatedly. Verse 2, verse 10, 24, 58, 69, 145. Now, there's a little Bible joke I like to use every now and then. And I, I told you before, be careful of getting into word studies in the Greek and Hebrew, because sometimes people just drop it to sound really intelligent. Well, you know, the Greek says this, the Hebrew says that. I think it only should be used when it really is part of the teaching. But sometimes I make a joke out of it. Maybe I'll say in the, in the Bible that, you know, uh, he was thirsty. And I'll say, you know, if you look up the word thirsty, you know what it means? It means thirsty. And then about five of you laugh, and I move on happy with myself. So, here though, the word whole, guess what it means? Whole. See, you're all students of Hebrew now. It means whole. It means everything. Now, just think this through for a second. This is not supposed to be a silly point. The word whole means whole. It means everything. Dawn and I just purchased something yesterday, and as we were getting ready to get it, it came in a set with multiple pieces. So I asked the lady, I said, so do I get everything in this set? She said, yes, you get everything in this set. So I said, I get everything in the set? She said, yes, you get everything in the set. So as we were loading it up in the van, guess what? She put everything in there. If she would have kept something back, I would say, well, wait a second. You told me I got the whole thing. Well, you do, you get the whole thing except for this. Well, then I don't get the whole thing. 
You can't tell me I get the whole thing and then keep something back because this logically, you haven't given me the whole thing. So therefore, if God says I'm supposed to seek Him with my whole heart, whole heart means what? Whole heart. Everything. This is not hidden from us in any way in the Bible. Jesus said in Mark 8, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark 12, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. He simply asks for everything. So here in these first two verses, if we can get the first two verses down of Psalm 119, the rest of the book flows. We see a heart of walking in the law, seeking Him with our whole heart. What does it mean to seek Him with all your heart, your whole heart? Can you go with me to 1 Corinthians 9? 1 Corinthians 9. Let's talk about what it means to have the whole heart for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 9, start in 24 with me. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Paul uses a lot of, we would use the term sports analogies. He obviously was familiar with the concept of athletics and how it works because he uses them a lot in his writing through the Spirit. So he's talking about running a race. You're supposed to run in such a way that you may obtain it. You're supposed to run to win the prize. You go out there, you work, and you compete. Take a look at 25. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Paul's logic is this. If you're willing to put that much effort into something that is perishable, earthly, does not last eternally, how much effort should you be to put into something that is eternal? Very simple. If you're willing to put that much effort into something that is earthly, that does not last forever, how much more should we be able to put into something that's eternal? I have three examples to show you. And once you get the first example, you'll follow all of them. But I'm going to use each one because it just follows a different character. And you already know where I'm going to go with it. Parents, imagine your child signs up for athletics. So they go to their first practice. And you're picking them up. You're taking them home. Say, how'd practice go? And the kid sighs and says, wow. Coach made it really clear. He expects us to get up a half hour, 45 minutes earlier than what we normally do and go out and practice before we go. We're going to have practice five, six days a week after school. It's going to be an hour and a half, possibly two hours. And then once we get all our homework done, a half hour before we go to bed, he wants to study the playbook. So you add it up, he's asking maybe two, two and a half hours a day. You as a parent would not stop and say, that coach does not grasp life. You would sit there and say, I am so glad I have a committed coach that's going to push my child into something deeper. Maybe it's not sports. Maybe they signed up for an extracurricular activity. They're taking an instrument for the first time. And the band teacher says, listen, the reality is this. Yes, you have band Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but I'm expecting you to go home every day and practice your scales for an hour every day. I'm expecting you to do this. You would not look at your child and say, no, 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 no. You put the minimal effort in. You would stop and say, listen, if they're asking for an hour a day, you're giving them an hour a day. You signed up for this, you made the commitment. Maybe they signed up for musical and they got a lead. And the director said, listen, you've got to practice your lines, not just at school. Yes, you've got musical practice every day for an hour and a half, two hours after school, but I'm expecting you on your own to get together with the other major characters and, and work off each other and practice this on your own free time. But yet, if I stand up here as a pastor and say, listen, my expectation is two and a half hours a day in the Word, you would sit there and say, oh, James, 
grace, mercy. We as parents are willing to tell our children, commit hours a day for a perishable crown. What about an imperishable crown? We're willing to make extra trips to and from for practices and activities for a perishable crown. What about an imperishable crown? I remember in one of my classes I took, they made it very clear that they said they're expecting 11 hours a week of work in this class. But since we're Christians, take Sunday off. So, they expected about two hours a day and just studying for that class. That was the expectation, two hours a day. I didn't sit there and say, I can't. No, that's what I signed up for, was two hours a day to keep studying this, reading it, rereading it, etc. What does it mean to seek him with your whole heart, with everything? Now, if I start out with this point, it becomes legalistic homework. But since we've already established now for two Sundays that this is the very word of God that is life-changing, given by God himself, and is historically accurate, it's relatable, it's readable, and it's reliable, there's no one that should sit here and say, well, why would I do this? Because this is God's word. And once again, if I'm willing to put that much effort into a perishable crown, I, I looked up some famous athletes I know, and we, we just applaud them for the amount of hours they did to become the master at their sport. What would happen if we would do what verse 27 says? I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. If I would train like that in God's word, not because I have to, but because I see the importance of it. Tozer said this on your sheets. Often God's people are put to shame by the devotion and discipline of people who don't even know the Lord, but who are intensely loyal to their family, their religion, or their personal pursuits. Even people who want nothing to do with the Word of God can be loyal to traditions and human codes. If Christians put the kind of discipline into their spiritual walk that athletes put into their chosen sport, the church would be pulsating with revival life. What would happen if we would say, out of love and devotion to God, not a have to, if we would look at each other and say, I want to do hours in the Word. The time's there. The time is there. I just deem that it's the most important thing with my whole heart I do this. Trust me, there will be plenty of time for games with the kids, homework, dishes, laundry, eating. There will be plenty of time. But what would happen if we would just say, with my whole Heart, Lord. That's what I'm going after. Back to Psalm 119. It's overwhelming to think about that. That's why you have verse 4. You have commanded us to keep your precepts. Listen, I'm not making you guys do anything. God's the one says, I command you. (laughs) He says, I command you to do this. It's overwhelming. That's why we have verse 5. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. It's like the author hits this point of saying, what am I supposed to do? I see this, Lord. I see the blessing of it. I want to keep it. I want to seek it. I want my whole heart to follow you. I want to walk in your ways. But verse 5, oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. It's overwhelming, Lord. It's a prayer of realization. Note how the passage changes. Verses 1, 2, 3. They, those... Verse 4 becomes us. Verse 5, a personal prayer. Then verses 6, 7, and 8 becomes I. became personal. It wasn't just, you know what, they need to read their Bible more. You know, those people need to be focused more on Christ. 
The light shined on him in verse 5, and he says, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. And all of a sudden it became, I. I will look into all your commands. Look at this devotion in 7 and 8. I will praise you with the uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes, oh, do not forsake me utterly. I will do it. It is a declaration of I will. And the blessing of it is verse 6, I will not be ashamed. Oh, what a blessing it is. A life of no regret, no shame, because I'm walking according to the word. What a blessing that is. We're going to pause real quick here, because we got the first section done. I want you to look on your sheets on the back of your bulletin. I put this on last week and we didn't get to it, but I want you to see it this week. It's from David Guzik. It's the breakdown of the different words in Psalm 119 for God's word. There's eight terms they use repeatedly. If you add them all up, these words are used nearly 200 times. Each one is saying the same thing but different. So they are overlapping words that are important. And I'm not going to read this to you. I'm just going to hit a couple of the highlights here because I want you to see this. Because as you start going through this chapter, you're going to start to see the repetition of these words. What is the law? The law carries a verbal root of the law. It's instructions from God. It doesn't necessarily mean legal laws. Because remember, the law is referring generally to the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible also have stories. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua, Moses. It's not just all rules. It's also instruction on who God is, the law. The next word is word. God is a talking God. He uses words to speak to us. Judgments, pretty straightforward there. Testimonies, God has given us a testimony of his word. That's what the Bible is. Remember, the Bible is God's word in our life to declare who he is as he testifies of himself. Deuteronomy 21 calls this the book of testimony. Commandments, you see that in verse 6, God is commanding us to do things. Statutes, verse 5, these are judicial judgments by God that have a legal mindset to it. Precepts, verse 4, these are particular instructions. We're getting more specific. And then we have word again, but it's a different Hebrew word. And this, as you see those like in verse 11, these are promises. So just keep this sheet in your Bible, because as you go through Psalm 119, you're going to see these words again, law, word, judgments, testimonies, commandments, statutes, precepts, word, and learn just what the different things mean. They're saying the same thing, but they just kind of layer upon each other to give a slightly different light on it, and that will bless you as you go through it. Now, we're only going to do verses 9 through 16, and as you can see here, the pace picks up because we've laid the foundation for what these words mean. But to show you the importance of God's word and how it's effective, we go to verse 9. Now, before we get to verse 9, imagine that you were trying to show the power of a certain tool or a certain detergent or something. Think back to your TV time, and as you're watching commercials, if they want to show you the power of a laundry detergent, what do they do? They show you boys playing outside. Because when boys come in, they're covered in mud and dirt. And so what happens, the boys come in, mud is all over everything. The mother looks at the camera and she does this little sigh. She throws all the clothes in in the washer and then she dumps in her Tide. And guess what? The laundry comes out miraculously clean. And we realize that Tide can keep a teenage boy clean. I have seven children. The first five are boys. There is mud and blood every day. Every day. I don't know how many times in my life I've heard Dawn say, you got good genes on no grass stains. Just that's what it is. So for us to show how good a detergent is, you pick the dirtiest thing you can find, a young boy, and say even Tide can make their clothes clean. What does God do to show us how powerful his word is? Verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? 
by taking heed according to your word. If a young man full of testosterone and no brain can keep himself right in the word of God, then he can keep anybody right. If that young man who has a hard time thinking through things and they just go, I mean, just go, and their testosterone and their bravado is going to get them through it. If they can stop and God's word can lead them and guide them by taking heed to it, by obeying it, by guarding it, then anybody can be moved and changed by God's word if a young man can. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let not me wander from your commandments. We're back to that phrase again. Whole heart. And Lord, I don't want to wander again from it. Keep me focused on this path. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. Hide God's word in your heart. Treasure it. Memorize it. The ESV says stored up. Do you have an area of sin that you keep on falling into? King James has a great word for it called besetting sins. Do you have a sin that just constantly trips you up? Find the scriptures that deal with it and memorize them. Start with memorizing a verse about it. And let it grow. Memorize a chapter. If you want to, go to Psalm 117. It's only two verses. You can come back next week and say, I memorized a chapter. Start working on full chapter. Find a chapter that has spoken to you deeply. John 15, Romans 8, and say, I'm going to memorize this. Think about what we're saying. Lord, your word is so amazing and powerful. I'm going to write it out. I'm going to memorize it. Because this is what your word is telling me to do and the power behind it. Now, if you believe this, this is just a book, then you're going to say, well, this is advice. I'm going to reject the advice. But if you truly believe everything we said, that this is the very word of God, God breathed, you're going to stop and say, Why am I not doing this? Parents, if you have any type of influence over your kids anymore, encourage them to memorize scripture. Bribe them with candy bars and ice cream if they memorize a verse. Encourage them to go deeper in chapters, writing it out. There was a teaching on YouTube I saw one time where the man memorized the first eight chapters of Romans and presented it as a teaching. And it flowed so beautifully. Did an altar call at the end and people came forward and got saved. The only thing he did was quoted Romans 1 through 8. Because it's the power of God's word. I remember years ago having a conversation with somebody out in that driveway right out there. And they were explaining their sin. And they were unloading on what their sin is. And I said, have you ever thought about memorizing God's word? And he said, what good would that do? Oh, there's a power in the word of God. 12. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Teach me ten times in this chapter, Lord. Teach me it. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Look at how it ends again. Verses 7 and 8. I will praise. I will keep. Verses 15 and 16. I will meditate. I will delight. I will not forget. These are declarations. This is a statement where the person stops and says, there is a determined effort at this point to say, Lord, I see the power of your word, the purpose of your word, and I'm going to make your word a priority. That's what it comes down to. If we can get the first two verses, we get the rest of the book. If we get the first two stanzas, we're going to get the rest of the book. Because we just build off what is being said right here. Look how it builds off each other. I need examples, verses 2 to verse 10. Two, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. Now jump ahead to ten. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. If any of you played piano, you know the importance of an octave. There's like spiritual octaves in this chapter. Where a lot of these verses, you just jump up eight verses and it just keeps the point building deeper and deeper and deeper. 
The depth of this chapter, the depth of this book, I can't stress it to you enough. The goal, once again, is a heartfelt, God-given desire for the word of God. Not legalistic, not homework, not have to, but to make the practical changes in your life where you stop and say, I believe this book is that powerful. I'm going to invest my time in it. Because God has also, back to uh, verse 4, commanded it. Let's pray. Lord, let us love this book. Let us live this book. But most importantly, let us love the message of this book, the salvation you give. Let us love the person that wrote this book, you. Let us see you in this book. Let us not just become prideful about knowing the Bible, but most importantly, as it says in Jeremiah, we boast in that we know you. Lord, enlarge our heart for this book. Give us an eagerness for their book. Open our eyes and ears to this book and incline our hearts for it. For our good and your glory in your name. Amen. Alrighty, in way of announcements, a couple things going on here. New Bible study starting up over in Deschler, uh, starting up Thursdays, starting the week of September 13th. And if you have any questions about this, you can see Betsy. They're going to be studying the book of Matthew. This is for ladies ages 18 and plus. Speaking of that, ladies, uh, there is also a group of gals that are getting together here through the church, reading through the Bible together for encouragement and accountability. If you're interested in that, contact my wife. Information's in the bulletin. And we also have three small group studies throughout the week for guys, three small group studies throughout the week for gals as well. Information's there, and I encourage you to get involved with that. Back to school bash coming up. A week from today, Tony will do a great job at making sure the kids start off with a spiritual focus. It will be after the 1030 service for grades K through 8. Um, also a prayer group getting together. I should say a prayer conference getting together up in Michigan, in Holland, Michigan. It's called Awaken Hope Through Moms in Prayer. If you're interested in that, see Lynette Taylor, ladies. And that's going to be October 9th. The church will cover the registration for that for anybody that wants to go. Starting the fellowship meals up first Wednesday in September. If you want to sign up for a fellowship meal, feel free to do that. The sheet's back there. You can see Pat if you have any questions about that as well. And I encourage you to come out first Wednesday of the month there and be blessed together as well. Some thank yous that we want to share. It says, thank you so much for remembering me in your prayers as I recuperated from my accident. The flowers you sent me are absolutely beautiful and very much appreciated. I pray I will be able to return to enjoy fellowship sometime in August. Again, thank you for thinking of me, Judith Scott. And Judith was actually here this morning. So Judith had a car accident back in the earlier summer and back in recovering. So thankful for that. Um, this is from Mark and Erica Fertig. These are missionaries that we support up at Toledo University. It says, thank you so very much for your faithful, generous support of our ministry. God is touching the hearts and lives of college students as they surrender to him and seek to do his will. Through your prayers and giving, you are partners with God and their transformed lives. We are grateful and continue to pray as we begin another school year. So keep Mark and Erica in prayer up there at TU. Um, what else do we got? If you want to, there's a copy of CD of the worship out here at church back there, or you can get on a flash drive, thumb drive, if that works better for you in your car. And I got one more here. Uh, It says, to our Harvest family, your thoughtfulness is appreciated. Thank you so much. From Larry Bear for the flowers and prayers at the time of my recent hospitalization and recovery. And Larry is here this morning and doing better and thankful for that. And speaking of prayers, we have a prayer quote over here to my left, and we're praying this for Lisa and uh, Jeffrey Hathaway, as you've seen come across the prayer line. Um, They were hospitalized last week with uh, COVID pneumonia. Lisa is doing better. I talked to her on the phone yesterday, making some progress. Uh, Jeffrey ended up having to be moved up to St. V's. 
He's in the cardiac care unit because of the ECMO. He is stable, she said, but comfortable this morning. But obviously a very difficult situation, and prayer is definitely needed. If you would like to, once we're done, if you want to come up here, the way the prayer quote works, you just pray over it. And if you want, you can tie the knot, and each knot represents a prayer prayed for them. We deliver the quilt to them, and that represents them being covered in prayer by the church. So continue to keep them in prayer. And let's just pray real quick. Lord, for Jeffrey and Lisa, and for Molly, Becca, and Seth, every breath from you, Lord, every breath from you, your hand to be upon them, encouraging and uplifting giving godly wisdom to the doctors, and we trust you in this. You are good and do good in your name. Amen. I believe that is everything. You guys have a good week. God bless. And if you want to take a moment to come up here and pray, you can. We'll see you next week. Take care and God bless.